Uh, well, tonight before Bob comes and preaches to us, uh, we wanted to share a short video with you. Many of you all are familiar with one of our missionaries, Shannon Hurley, who's serving in Uganda. Shannon has uh, been to our church before um, and uh, has spent some time with us uh, on a couple of occasions, I think. He's, he's taught for a number of years at our uh, youth summer camp at uh, Southern Seminary. Uh, D3. He's he's been up there and, and taught for, um, for for several years with that. And uh, he and his family makes their home in Uganda, uh, training um, pastors there to go and reach the wider country and and really all of East Africa, as you'll see here in this video. So uh, pay attention this evening as we share just this short word from Shannon with you. The reason we show that was uh, not just to remind you as to who our missionaries in Uganda are, uh, but to let you know that what we are attempting to do is to take a mission trip to Uganda in June. Uh, so if you are interested in going, we're going to have an informational meeting, hopefully, uh, next Sunday evening um, after church. Uh, besides having the school for pastors, 
Uh, they've basically kind of revitalized the village. They, um, they have a school there that they run that runs basically kindergarten through high school. Uh, we'll have more information as to all the different types of things that we might be able to do when we get there. Uh, so again, it's, it's tentative that it's the first week of June because we haven't gotten confirmation uh, from, from them on that yet. Um, it'll probably be about a week. Again, I don't know if that means seven days or eight days and, and you know, trying to include travel. Uh, but I'd like you to, to think about that. Uh, one of the great things about Uganda is the official language is English. So you don't have to worry about translators and being unable to understand everyone. They all speak English. Uh, so that makes it, uh, makes it wonderful. Um, so anyway, we'll have more information for that, and hopefully uh, you will be as excited about that as uh, many of us are, and you'll want to go. I'm planning on going. Um, I would prefer not to go alone. I will, <laughs> but I prefer not to go alone, uh, and, and I think uh, the, more we, the more that can go, the better. So anyway, please uh, be in prayer for that, and then we'll probably have another couple of videos uh, late, throughout the year to just kind of give you a, a bigger um, uh, understanding of all that's going on there and what they have going on. Shannon's a terrific guy. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, Bosco was in one of the shots there. He was here. Uh, he graduated from Southern Seminary. Uh, he was actually sent from there. Uh, to go to Southern Seminary, he completed his, his uh, college and seminary, then he's, he's gone back there, and he made a stop here, and we had a, a worship seminar with him uh, several years ago. Uh, terrific, terrific guy, and uh, the Lord is really blessing what, they, uh, what they're doing there in Uganda. So I trust that you will uh, think a great deal about that and pray about that, and even if you're still unsure, come to the informational meeting that we have next week, Sunday evening, and uh, hopefully that will answer maybe some questions you might have and enable you to be able to better make a, an informed decision as to uh, what the Lord would have you to do with that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness, and again, for the message of Christ. And Father, we know, Lord, that the message of Christ is transformative. Uh, it's transformed us. It has transformed people in our families. It's transformed our friends. Uh, we know, Lord, that it transforms those uh, throughout the world and throughout history. Uh, because, Lord, it addresses the greatest need that we have. And so, Father, we ask that you would continue to bless us in our desire to uh, support those who are taking the message, especially, Father, to places that perhaps have not heard. Uh, Father, we also ask that you would continue to help us to grow ourselves as individuals, that we may continue to live in light of the gospel, and that we ourselves may be able to go uh, here and abroad to share the message of Christ. It's always exciting, Father, to see your work firsthand in the lives of others. It just brings a great joy and thrill to our soul, and we thank you for that. Father, we ask for your blessing this evening on the Word as we continue our study through the book of Matthew, and in particular in the life of Christ. We ask again, Father, you would grant us understanding and insight uh, into the Word and what it says that we may become more like your Son, Christ, in every way. So we do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Before I read from our text tonight, I just want to... Uh, I didn't really have time to, to mention it uh, this morning during the message, but uh, in your bulletin on page 12 and 13, there's a list of books all dealing with one aspect or the other of the importance uh, of the Word of God, the authority of the Word of God, and the trustworthiness of Scripture. Uh, as I mentioned this morning, it is a very important topic. Uh, it is one that is, uh, as far as Christians and their commitment to the authority of the Word of God, uh, sometimes it wavers. Uh, we sometimes don't intentionally 
uh, waver in that, but we, because of the influence of the culture around us, uh, we may have been influenced in that way more than we think. And so you can kind of take a look at these, and uh, I would encourage you to, uh, to get one or two of these and to read it. Um, you can, there's a brief description so that you can kind of figure out what it is you're getting into. Uh, and again, if something is a little thicker, uh, as far as maybe the academic level of a book, and it's something that you, uh, maybe it's a little bit more than what you bargained for, uh, my suggestion would be then just take it in smaller bites. Uh, just work through, you know, uh, maybe a couple of chapters a month or a couple of chapters every two months, uh, because I think it's worth digesting uh, and growing as a believer. It helps us to think deeper and to think, be- think better over, uh, over issues. Sometimes what will take place is, we never, we were unaware that something even was an issue. And then as we learn about it, understand it, and see uh, maybe its foundational importance, we begin to realize that, yes, it, it is an issue, and perhaps it needs to be a bigger issue uh, because of what it means. Uh, the Christian church in our country as a whole does tend to be fairly weak, uh, and we're weak in a lot of ways. Um, the weakness of the church is not just seen when people make poor decisions morally, though that obviously is a um, result of that, but sometimes the weakness comes because of just a lack of really being able to think a little more deeply about the Word of God. Uh, the goal here is not to make us all academics. Uh, that's not what any of this is. It's just to make us um, a little more um, informed, again, about some very important topics. And, and my thought has always been that if you read through a book, and let's say it is a little difficult, uh, and let's say you get 30% of it, then, you're, then you've gotten 30% more than you would have had if you had read nothing. Uh, and I think that's helpful. That, you know, knowledge builds. Uh, and sometimes you'll get a certain amount, and then later on, a couple years later, uh, you may get more because your understanding is being opened uh, and you're being enlightened to some things, and you begin to hear things differently and see things differently and think about them differently because of what you have, what you have read. And so it's just a, a great thing for us to do. So... Uh, take a look at that. All of these would be very, very good. Um, and if you have any questions on maybe if you're trying to decide between one or two, um, you can talk to me, you can talk to Tim uh, about any of these, and we can maybe help you think through it. It's not, that doesn't mean that he and I have read all of these. We haven't. Um, at least I know I haven't. Uh, Tim may have. But, um, <laughs> uh, but, we, but we can kind of figure out maybe what would be a, a, a good, good for you to read as far as based on who the authors are or who the editors and how you can best digest this issue. But it is a very, very important one, and one that we want to make sure that we don't overlook. Anyway, book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. We have read and talked a little bit about uh, Christ being led into the wilderness to be tempted. And so we will look at that once again, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. 
And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So a couple of things from last week, just to kind of uh, remind you and kind of get us back in the groove of thinking through this, uh, this passage that's given to us. Again, I read you a quote from Arnold Frutenbaum, and he said, The clear relationship between the baptism of Jesus and his temptation should not be missed. This connection is seen in two ways. First, at his baptism, he said that he had come to fulfill all righteousness. At his temptation, this righteousness was tested. And secondly, at his baptism, God the Father declared him to be the beloved Son. At his temptation, he was challenged to prove this. So as we looked at this and began to look at some of the details about this passage, again, remember that we noted that when Jesus faced Satan, when he faced the enemy, he faced him as a man and not as the Son of God. Now, this is important when we think through the life of Jesus Christ. It's, there's that, uh, it, it's kind of a difficult concept to grasp, the fact that Jesus was 100% God and 100% human at the same time, simultaneously. And that Jesus had the ability to act and think like a man, in a sense, apart from his divinity. It's not that he had a split personality. Uh, it's not that. But what we, the reason why we bring this up is because when he faced these temptations that came from Satan, he did so as, as a man or as a human being. He wasn't depending upon his powers uh, as, as God himself. Uh, he was, uh, as a man, he was hungry. He experienced the weakness that comes from uh, going on a 40-day fast. I already explained to you that that is entirely possible, humanly speaking, uh, and that it's not really, uh, at least back then, it was not all that unusual. Not that it happened a lot for that kind of an elongated period of time, uh, but for the Jewish people as a whole, uh, the entire community would have, was on a regular basis fasting once a week. Most everyone participated in that, is they would fast. You, even your children would fast one day a week. Infants wouldn't, but, um, but that would be just kind of the norm. And then those who were viewed as being more um, consecrated to God, uh, some of them obviously use it for a wrong reason to bring attention to themselves, but, uh, but you did have those who on a regular basis would fast two days a week. And so an individual who's already in the habit of doing that, then going on an elongated fast of a week or two weeks or three weeks, um, Again, you build up to that, and it's, it's not as difficult uh, as one would imagine. It does require a great deal of discipline, but it, it would be it's just insane if you and I decided tomorrow we're going to start a 40-day fast. Most of us would end up in the hospital because uh, our bodies aren't accustomed to that, and we probably wouldn't get very far into it anyway. Uh, some of us might have a hard time getting through four hours, not just 40 days. But uh, again, the idea there is that, that this was clearly possible. We also saw, as we looked at this, is that um, Jesus, when he was being tempted, did represent Israel. We looked at some Old Testament passages, and so we're not going to continue to belabor that point. But at the same time, Jesus, as we've been talking about him facing this temptation, also represented all believers. And so we find in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession." For we do not have a high priest who, was, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Again, keep in mind that the letter to the Hebrews is written to a group of uh, second-generation believers, and they are facing uh, persecution. Perse- they've heard about persecution. The ones who are being written here to have heard about persecution. There's been, uh, even, there have been a few who have even died uh, in the persecution. And it seems, as you read through the whole letter, that they're trying to figure out what to do. Like, how, how to handle this, how to prepare for this. And it seems that some of them had this idea, because they were Jews, that what they would do is they would renounce Christ. And they would, they would begin to live as, as good Jews. And they would make their, their trips to the temple that they were supposed to. They would make sacrifices. Uh, so they would appear that they were just good Jewish and, and they were not Messianic Jews in any way. And then when the persecution died down, they would then come back to Christ. And so the author there to them basically says, uh, you can't do that, uh, and it makes no sense to do that. Why would you leave that which is superior for that which is inferior? And so here then he talks about their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and wants them to understand that Christ understands their weaknesses. He understands what they're facing. It's, It's a true understanding. It's not where God's trying to imagine what it's like, but he really can't come close because he's God. Uh, Jesus experienced these things. He experienced the pressure. Uh, He experienced very real temptation like we do. And so he does understand our weaknesses. That doesn't mean that God or that Jesus ever condones us giving in, but but it's different when he understands. That would then mean that there's going to be a greater sensitivity, a greater patience, we know that he is forgiving and kind, and he's going to give us the strength that we need. Uh, it is not a sink or swim kind of business uh, with the Lord. He's there to help us and to aid us uh, in every aspect of our life as Christians. But so part of the encouragement that the author here is giving them is that the Lord understands. And so he says, because we have this priest, hold fast to your confession, that they believe that Christ is the Son of God, that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he reminds them that Jesus is our high priest, that he does sympathize with our weaknesses, and that he was in every respect tempted like we are. And that then takes us immediately back to the book of Matthew, to this temptation that Jesus was facing. So the basis then for the priesthood of Jesus is that he was tempted as believers are so that he could become our sympathetic high priest. The temptation of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4 is best explained by 1 John. So turn to 1 John chapter 4. I mean 1 John chapter 2, sorry. 1 John chapter 2. And this explains the connection, I guess you would say, between the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4 and what we've just read here in Hebrews chapter 4. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. You'll recognize the verse. You've heard it probably often. Um, It reads this way. For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the main idea of this is that all sin can fall under these three categories. So even though we know that Jesus Christ was never tempted in the exact same way we are, in other words, obviously he was never tempted to waste too much time online. It didn't happen. But when you generalize the sins... Uh, And what we face today is really no different than any of the sins that was faced by first century Christians. The only difference is is the kind of technology that's available. But 
but the temptations that come our way, what they appeal to in our heart, the heart is the same. Whether it's lust, pride of life, whatever, it's the same. It just comes in a different format, uh, comes in a different way to us. Uh, so we want to make sure that we're careful, A, not to think that in one sense, uh, temptation is worse today than it was before. Because I don't think it's worse. I don't think it was worse then than today. I just I think there's a continuity with that. Uh, the temptation to sin, as it says in James, we are drawn away by what? Our own lust, the desires of our heart. We're not drawn away by better technology. That's just the, the, the medium that's used uh, today more so than not. Makes it in, in some senses, it does make certain kinds of sins easier. But again, the reason why the temptations are strong is not because of the ease of slipping into sin. The temptations are strong because of the condition of our heart. And again, once again, the, the encouragement that we need to, to continue to grow and to mature as believers. So those desires basically die away, and they are replaced with these new desires to love the Lord and the things of the Lord. Then those things use, lose their strength. So again, the three areas of temptation generally are the, is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So when Jesus then was tempted to change the uh, stones into bread, it was after, again, he had fasted 40 days. We know that he was extremely hungry. He would have been very much aware that he needed food. Uh, his flesh cried out to be satisfied with food. And so this was a temptation in the area of the lust of the eyes. It was God's will for Jesus to satisfy his own hunger, but it was not God's will for him to use his messianic power to achieve this. So you could, you could say in one sense that perhaps the, the temptation he faced was uniquely different in that he did have the ability to do that. He could have immediately turned those stones into bread right that moment, and he could have eaten. We don't have that temptation. We can't do that. Now, we, we can certainly take the 30 seconds to drive to Kroger uh, and do it that way, but the idea here is that he was truly tempted, and he had the ability here um, to satisfy this, this legitimate need that he had, but he would have done it really in an illegitimate way because it was not the will of God for him to use his messianic power in that way. So again, we all have legitimate needs. God desires that those needs be met, but the, those needs are met in legitimate God-honoring ways. So it is the will of the Lord for you to uh, pay your responsibilities, whether it's your mortgage or uh, whatever bills that you have to pay, it's, it's, it's the Lord desires for you to do that. Uh, and you could make a lot of money selling drugs. That would be an illegitimate way. That does not honor the Lord. I know that's an exaggeration. Hopefully none of us would be tempted to do that, but there are some who are. Uh, and, that, and in some other countries uh, where they don't have the kind of economic support that we have, sometimes the temptations to, uh, to provide for your family in some of these ways is very, very powerful. And even can be overwhelming. You know, it's very difficult to see your own children starving to death, literally. Uh, and so here the idea is that, again, we have legitimate needs. God knows that. Uh, but his desire is that we meet those needs in a legitimate God-honoring way. And so, um, uh, you know, we, we need to make sure that becomes something that, that becomes a part of our thinking as believers. Jesus, as we know, was shown all the kingdoms of the world. He was told he could have it by simply worshiping Satan just once. Again, this would have been temptation in the area of the lust of the eyes. Uh, Satan was seeking to tempt the Lord to put the temporal treasures over eternal things. He was seeking to make our Lord so lust after the riches that he could see 
with his eyes that he would abandon the one who gives him all good things uh, to those who trust him. So this is a temptation everyone feels, especially in the prosperous culture we live in, is, uh, is, a, is a temptation to, to live only in the here and now, to grab all that we can now. You know, the idea, sometimes you hear individuals, whether they're believers or non-believers, will say things, you know, they, let's say they've done something a little crooked to get something, and they're saying, well, but I've suffered long enough, and I want a piece of my pie too, or, you know, that kind of thing. You know, our focus is wrong. Our, uh, uh, we're, we're desiring the wrong things. They have too high of a priority. And so uh, because of, the, of all that is available in our country, uh, we definitely can begin to place temporal things above the most important things, above spiritual things. And it's important that we, we don't get caught up in that. And again, that can come in various forms. An individual can be very committed to work, and that's a good thing. And you can be very committed to doing the best job that you can. That's a good thing. And uh, perhaps that uh, you are doing so and you have a desire to want to gain promotions. That's not a bad thing. But what we have to be careful of is that uh, we don't then begin to either A, maybe compromise uh, on our behavior ethically to advance, or perhaps that we don't begin to allow priorities to get out of whack. We we've all are familiar with the story of the individual who works too much to the point that they neglect their family. Uh, and neglecting the family, uh, so it is important for us to provide for our family financially, but it's also important for us to be there for our family, to, to help to, you know, to raise the kids, to influence them, uh, you know, those types of things. Uh, sometimes individuals are committed to saying, well, I just want uh, to raise my family's standard of living so my kids can have what I didn't have. Well, we need to ask ourselves a question. Is that a godly, God-honoring desire for your kids to have what you didn't have? Because sometimes we just assume that's exactly what God wants. I don't see that written in the Bible anywhere. What is the, what is the true need that your family has? The true need they have is, is perhaps maybe holding on to some of the things that you did have. Uh, and that just because, uh, just because you had the, maybe the same dinner every night for several nights uh, at certain points, that, why is that a bad thing? It's not necessarily you survived, maybe you, and maybe perhaps you did really well, but you've come out thinking the wrong thing, that in your desire to provide for the things you didn't have, which again, by itself is not necessarily bad, but we need to think about that correctly. And so perhaps uh, it is the will of God for you to remain in a home that is too small, by, I guess, American standards, uh, and live within your, within your means so that you can be with your family so that you can raise them as you ought to. You've heard me say before that sometimes an individual would, will think this, uh, um, say that an individual is raised in a family where the father was an alcoholic, and so there are times where not only did the family not have enough to eat, uh, but perhaps the father was gone just an enormous amount of time because he was drunk out of his mind. And so uh, the, the little boy becomes a man, and he gets married, and he says, you know, I'm going to make sure that I never follow my father's footsteps. And so he doesn't. He's not an alcoholic, but he works 80 hours a week. His kids never miss a meal, but he's just like his father. His father wasn't there when he was growing up. He's not there when his kids are growing up. He's made the same mistake, the same error. Uh, because, his, because in his thinking, he was thinking that maybe missing a meal was worse than the influence of the individual being there. And so we need to think correctly about these things, and obviously the Bible helps us to do that. 
Thirdly, Satan asked Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple to prove he was the son of God. That would be a temptation there of the pride of life because he was asked to prove he was the Messiah. Now, again, remember, this is where it becomes a little tricky as we think about it. Um, and that may not be the best word, tricky, but the idea is, is that, again, sometimes we think that, well, because he knew who he was and he was God, again, there's not any real temptation here. But remember, he's a human being in every way like you and I are. And he had emotions, just like we do. And a lot of times what strengthens a temptation is our emotions. You know, when our desires become inflamed, then our emotions sometimes kick in or somehow they're, they're involved in this process. And so certain temptations can take on a greater strength um, because it's almost like we're all in because, you know, the, our emotions are so overpowering. And that's, again, why it's important for us to be self-controlled and, and these things. And so Christ obviously was not living by the way he felt. But again, this was a very real temptation. God's not lying to us here and saying that Jesus was tempted in all areas like we are. This is a very real temptation that came to the Lord. There is some interesting things behind this specific temptation. Uh, some, things, some background information in the thinking of the Jews. And why would Satan do this? Why would he ha- you know, say, I'm going to take you to the pinnacle and, and you know, want you to throw yourself off so that you can uh, you know, prove you're the Son of God? Well, in some rabbinic writings, we have this statement, and, and it reads this way. When the king Messiah reveals himself, he will come and stand on the roof of the temple. Now, in reading Alfred Edersheim, he, uh, he, he says some things about this tradition. He says, our rabbis give this tradition. In the hour when king Messiah comes, he stands upon the roof of the sanctuary and proclaims to Israel, saying, you poor and suffering, the time of your redemption draws nigh. And if you believe, rejoice in my light, which is risen upon you, upon you only. And they shall come and lick the dust from under the feet of the king uh, Messiah and say, we will be servants to him and Israel. When he uses the phrasing here, they shall come and lick the dust from under the feet. Um, the idea is that they, they, they're coming and they're submitting themselves to follow him in, in everything that he says. Uh, it's the idea of, of absolute submission is what's being said here, that they are committed to following him regardless of where he goes. That's, that's what that means there when he makes that statement. So you have... Again, remember when we, we've talked before that there were different pockets of teaching when Jesus comes on the scene. Remember, all of Israel was not believing the same thing. They did believe the same thing in this, that there's only one God, uh, that, you, that this is the only God that you worship, which would be Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever term you want to use, that you do not make any image to this God. They were all in agreement on that. But when it came to understanding who was the Messiah, uh, what would the Messiah look like? How will he come? There were, different, there were some different groups. You know, There were some we thought there would be two different Messiahs. Uh, there was a very large contingent who believed that when the Messiah came, that he would come as a conquering king. And that's what they were looking for, to be freed from Rome. Uh, and that's what they were looking for. There was a small group that understood, I believe correctly, and I think you would agree as well, understood that, that the issue of sin needed to be dealt with. That, that that had to be done, and that he was, he was going to come and remedy that, and that needed to be done first. But, but so there's all these, you know, and there's some variations among these groups uh, as far as their thinking. So we have this group then, and we have this tradition that comes out of all of that, that there is this belief, that there is a traditional belief that the Messiah would somehow end up on the roof of the temple and make this proclamation uh, to Israel as to who he was, and they would submit. 
Brad Young, who writes a lot of things, not everything he says is great, but Brad Young writes a lot of things in light of uh, what we would call messianic Christianity in, in light of a very heavy uh, orientated uh, Jewish background to understanding the Gospels. He says this, in light of all of this, the true nature of the final temptation can be understood only in light of the messianic beliefs of the period. The temple was closely related to the activities of the messianic deliverer who would use the form of its sacred courts to proclaim his message of deliverance. So Satan was asking Jesus to reveal himself as the Messiah by appearing in supernatural power in the temple where all would recognize the nature and the purpose of his mission. So what we recognize then from this tradition is that if Jesus then appeared on the roof of, of the uh, temple uh, and, and began to speak or jump or whatever he's going to do, everybody would immediately know what that meant. That would have been a messianic event. Nobody would have thought anything other than that uh, when it came to him. So when Satan challenged Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle, he quoted the 91st Psalm. And Satan was right. If Jesus had thrown himself down, the angels would have let Jesus down gently. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So he was correct in his understanding of what that verse was saying about what would happen to Jesus. So, if they, so uh, obviously, if Jesus was standing on the pinnacle of the temple or on the roof of the temple, and he jumped, and then he basically gently floated down to the ground, I think they all would have immediately proclaimed him to be the Messiah. Boom, there would have been over, and they would have instantly followed him. But again, remember, that is not the way that God wanted to prove his Messiahship. That's not the plan that God had in mind. So we can say this, we might be tempted to seek the spotlight, to gain the credit, and to be acknowledged. We need to be content and submit to God's plan and wait for God's timing. Uh, there may be a temptation to elevate oneself at the cost of stealing glory from the Father. Again, remember that Jesus, as a man, clearly made it, uh, these statements that he came to do the will of the Father. He was going to do it the way the Father had dictated, period. He was not going to do anything on his own accord. Uh, he was not going to upstage the Father. He came to reveal the Father. Uh, he was not going to elevate himself. He was going to wait to be elevated by the Father. That's, that's, that's what he was going to do. And so, again, as we look at this, we need to make sure that, that we don't do the same thing. A lot of individuals, again, it's, it's not just our country where this happens. It, it does seem to be, I guess, more prominent in our culture because of the kind of technology we have set up. But this happens throughout the world within Christianity, where there are individuals who get involved in ministry, and they begin to think um, in terms of being famous or being well-known or having a large following. It very easily feeds the ego. Anytime somebody speaks publicly, let's say it's in a religious setting, a Christian setting, and they're explaining the word of God, and people, you know, let's say people are drawn to it, uh, people like the way that the individual speaks, they like the way they communicate, um, that can definitely feed someone's ego. Absolutely, I don't care who you are. Uh, and so we have to always be on our guard, because pretty soon, you, could be, you begin to think that it's about you. you. You don't, it's not always real obvious. It's this, obvious, a lot of times it's just thoughts the individual keeps in the back of their mind uh, because that would obviously look pretty bad to others if they began to, you know, proclaim themselves that way. Uh, but, some, but, but many individuals will find ways to get others 
to elevate them. And so we've got it, man. We, we, it's, it's not, you know, we have a term we use in America. We talk about celebrity pa- pastors. Um, we need to be careful how we use that because there are some pastors who are very well known who are extremely godly, and they don't have issues with that. But there are many who do want to be that. They want to be the celebrity pastor. They want to be well-known. They want to be famous, and they want it to be about them uh, kind of a thing. And we just have to be very, very careful with that. Remember that as you read through the scripture, when it comes to those who serve as pastors, pastors really are what you would call under-shepherds. We're all under the great shepherd. It's, it's not about us at all. Every pastor should be doing the same thing, pointing people to Christ, period. And if, and if God uses you or God uses them in maybe what we would call a great way, then, then fine. But that's God's business. We're not trying to orchestrate it to make it happen. Uh, God has some that he's placed in positions where they will be known by hundreds of thousands and others who may only minister to 60 people. God determines that. Uh, and he alone determines that. And we have to be satisfied with that. One of my, famous, uh, one of my, one of my favorite preachers was famous. His name was uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a, a medical doctor in, uh, in the UK and became a pastor, which caused quite a stir. There were those who thought he was crazy and out of his mind and had maybe fallen in his head. Uh, there are others who were pretty excited about what he did. But when I read through his, uh, his biography, which is a, there's an excellent biography written by his assistant, which, is, which was at, at that time Ian Murray. Um, it's a very large two-volume uh, um, biography, but it's just fabulous in so many ways. But one of the things that struck me when I was reading, reading that is that uh, wherever Martin Lloyd-Jones went to preach, there was never any advertisements Posters being put up, encouraging people to come and hear this great man of God. just didn't happen. He just went. And people, I mean, word of mouth traveled quick. And people came from everywhere to hear this guy. He was unbelievably well known. He preached the same wherever he went. He didn't care if there was four people or 4,000. He was going to do the same thing. Uh, I believe that his, his humbleness was genuine. Uh, he just lived his, his life and didn't care if he was famous or not famous. That just wasn't an issue with him. And it, to me, that really comes out strongly, even though it's not the intent of the biography. And I think it's great because this man had, a, had an effect on literally tens of thousands of people that he would have never met um, because of his preaching and his love for the Lord. And so we need to make sure that whether an individual is pastoring a church or whether within a church um, an individual has a Bible study or a Sunday school, we need to make sure that we are careful that we're not how, somehow trying to elevate ourselves. And it happens a lot even in churches. Uh, it's not all that unusual in a church that when there begins to be some trouble, you know, a lot of things can cause trouble in a church, uh, but there are times when individuals teaching and perhaps this individual discovered that they, that they teach pretty well. And again, they can kind of get a big head and they, they can do stuff that messes people up. You know, they, they begin to make it about themselves, and, and they lead uh, weaker believers uh, kind of away from the purpose of the church. And, what, and it's not about drawing people away from following the pastor, because you're not supposed to be following the pastor anyway. We're following Christ, uh, and we all want to grow and move forward. We should, be, we should celebrate those who are gifted, who can do 
who can teach well. And so we want to continue to promote this because some pastors do the opposite thing. You know, they find someone who can do really well and they try to get rid of them or try to, you know, subvert what they're doing in some way, which is just nuts. Uh, but it happens. Uh, but you also have individuals who try to elevate themselves and, and they, be, they start to feel very important about themselves. So we want to make sure that we recognize here that this temptation to, to the Lord is not only one that, that we can relate to, but one that he understands that we go through because he experienced it himself. So as we summarize these, the temptation uh, of Jesus to turn the stone to bread was a challenge that related to the will of God. Jesus had a lot to decide while it was very much, again, God's will for him to satisfy his hunger. Um, it was not God's will for him to, to use his miraculous power to do so. The answer was no. When he was shown all the kingdoms of the world, it was a test really of his submission to the will of God. Would Jesus consistently submit himself to God the Father? Or would he on this just one occasion submit himself to the authority of Satan in order to gain power over the kingdoms of the world and maybe bypass the suffering of the cross? It is God's will for Jesus to rule over the kings of the world. I think that's clear from the word of God. But again, this is not the manner in which uh, God wanted his son to achieve that messianic goal. It was the wrong way. The temptation at the pinnacle of the temple, as again, was a test of his dependence upon God. There was a right way and a wrong way of depending upon God. The wrong way is to test God, tempting him to fulfill his promises. Uh, you know, that's why sometimes we say, well, if you believe that no matter what God wants for your life, it's going to happen, why don't you go play in the freeway? Well, because the Bible says, don't tempt the Lord your God. It's, it's wrong to do that um, uh, in every way. So we must never test God's promises. We must simply believe that he will fulfill them in due time. So when an individual decides to go as a missionary, uh, they would do normal planning uh, to make that happen. They don't just say, well, I'm just going to go and God will take care of it. He promised and you just kind of go. Now, I do think there may be times where that's actually appropriate, but those would be rare. Um, and there's unique circumstances that I believe make those things clear. Uh, but in the end, uh, and, and there are many individuals who go on the mission field who will make sacrifices. And that, again, would be the norm for that to happen. But the idea, again, is that we don't, you know, it says in Proverbs, um, don't lean on your own understanding. And that's true. But Proverbs does not say completely abandon your understanding. They say that God has given us a mind and he expects us to use it. And so uh, we use it in submission to the will of God and to the word of God, but we use it nonetheless. So, again, while it was God's will for Jesus to be proven to be the Son of God, again, that was not the means uh, to, uh, to uh, achieve it. We know that Satan misused and quoted Scripture out of context. Again, he had a right understanding of it, but he took it out of context. Jesus used the Scripture to resist the devil and his temptations. And that's how we fight temptation. You want to know, I guess, I, I hate saying it this way because it's not a secret, but you want to know the secret to fighting temptation? It's not all those self-help books out there. I think self-help books are good in helping us to overcome flaws in our lives as Christians, but when it comes to dealing with temptation itself, I think the best way is to become immersed in the Word of God. It's not a magical thing, but it's just simply this. One of the ways that you help your body fight diseases is you eat well. You take care of yourself. That's what you do. And there are a lot of diseases you may not get because you take care of yourself. A lot of diseases that people who are malnourished get that you won't get because you're nourished. Same thing when it comes to nourishing the soul. You want to fight temptation? The heart has to change. And that's the way the heart changes. That is the foundation 
uh, to these things. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is clear on what that says. So you don't have to go out looking for the devil. You don't have to go out and try to fight the devil. Just resist. How do you resist? You depend upon the word of God. Now, one more thing that I think is important. Uh, in Matthew 4.11, it does say, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Uh, uh, when it comes to the temptations of Satan, uh, I do think that uh, almost always the temptations of Satan promise us some benefit, but Satan will not tell you what the real cost is. We, we need to think through that. But here's the thing I'm going to leave you with. It's not in Matthew, but it's in Luke. Uh, same story, but there's a, there's a sentence here that's added that is not in Matthew. And I think this uh, uh, sentence is important. Verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Every spiritual triumph or victory is temporary. There will be more battles later. Spiritual warfare must be fought until the day of our death. I think it's interesting when he says that he departed from him until, a, until an opportune time. I think the way that directly applies to you and me is this. If we are able to overcome temptation, and let's say, if we're, if we're kind of looking at it, we would phrase it that, that Satan has ended his temptation of me and he's gone. When he leaves, he's going to come back looking for an opportune time. He's going to come back when you're sick. He's going to come back when you're tired. He's going to come back when you're feeling a little low. He's going to come back when you're undisciplined. He's going to search for your weakness. That is the opportune time because the opportune time is when you are most vulnerable to give in. And so what we need to remember, we can rejoice that we've overcome maybe some temptations. We should rejoice and be happy over that. But we can't sit on our laurels. We just, you know, again, if, you, if, if there's a flu epidemic going around and you've not been affected by that because, let's say you are, you're eating well, you're doing all those things, when the flu epidemic is over, you don't say, man, I'm glad I got through that. It's pie and ice cream every day for the next three months. That would not be a good thing to do. A lot of bad things can happen to you if you begin to do that. All right, so the idea is, is that we can, you know, should be a lifestyle. We continue to do what's right. And the same thing when it comes to our lives as Christians is that Satan is not going to leave you alone. Uh, what every single spiritual victory that we have, remember, it's temporary until the Lord returns. And we keep that, we keep that in mind. We remain alert and aware, and we will do better. And we'll be able to press on for the long haul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for, again, the example of Christ and the story that was preserved for us, that we may understand that Christ indeed is our high priest, that he does empathize with our weaknesses, and that even he himself was tempted, just like we are. Except, Father, we are very much aware, as the scripture says, that he did so without sin. Father, we know that we blow it and we fail. We thank you, Lord, again for your grace in our life. We thank you, Lord, for the victory you've given us from time to time over sin. And, Father, we desire to have even greater victory. And we ask, Lord, you would help us. You would help us, Father, to remain in your word, to do what is right and to depend upon you. We pray, Lord, that you keep our pride subdued. We pray, Lord, you keep our eyes fastened on you. And that, Lord, that we would, that we would be able to experience the great joy and the deep happiness that comes in living in light of your word. So, Father, we thank you once again for the truth of your word. We pray that you would burn these lessons, burn this story deep into our heart and mind, that you would cement these truths there, that we may live by them, be challenged by them, and be changed by them. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.